You may notice some things are a little bit different in that it's my face on a screen and not my face in person. There's a reason for that. We continue uh, to evolve in this experiment for a season, which I think is going to be our future. We are still experimenting with technology and, and different things that, <clears throat> that you guys can do. Are, are you capable of, of growing through this? We're looking to expand. We're looking to multiply. We're looking to go into family rooms and Coney Islands and prison cells. And so today, we continue that experiment that we began almost a year ago, just before all the COVID stuff broke out. We were doing this and starting to co-teach with other churches and other pastors. So today, you're a part of part two of this. Speaking of part two, we're going to get into part two today of our series called Family Business. And last week, as we talked about the goodness of God and grace and salvation and faith and, and all that God does. And we really, we really kind of got into the thought of, of we were orphans. Not just orphans, but we lived in the dynamics of an orphanage. We talked about 2 Timothy chapter 3 and how hard that can be. That in the last days, man, people are going to be godless and no compassion and greedy and lovers of themselves. And if we live in an environment like that long enough, which we all did, we realize at some point we've learned certain habits, certain mechanisms, certain reflexes that are inside of us, kind of like Pavlov's dogs. You know, they heard the belly started salivating. We hear certain things or smell certain things or see certain things or feel certain things. And when we do, there's a defensive reaction. They, the dogs salivated waiting for food. We, we get tense. We get nervous. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I heard people say, man, I'm just really wrestling with. And the next word is, you know, anxiety or fear or worry or anger or, and what this is, is where we reacting to the world around us, but we're reacting to the world as if there were no God, as, as if we were not his adopted children. And so, again, we, we continue this series on family business, understanding who he is, who we are, what our purpose is, and what our legacy can be. So I'm glad that you're here with us today, and it's going to be fun. So this is the key statement from last week, and it was this, trusting God to do all the work of salvation, all the work of adoption is, everybody say is. Come on, come on. I know there's a video. Everybody say is. It is the work we are asked to do. Remember that scripture from John, that the work that God requires is for us to believe in his son. Like trusting that Jesus is enough, has enough, has done enough, is good enough, is generous enough. That is the work. That is the thing that we do. It's especially hard um, for, for us uh, who have lived a life that is not all charmed, right? I mean, people, I don't know anybody who lives a charmed life. I don't know anybody who's like, I, I've never had a single bad thing happen to me. No one's ever hurt my feelings. No girl has ever broken up with me. No guy has ever broken my heart. I, I think in the world we live in, it's safe to say all of us have experienced pain. Some of us desperate, deep wounds that came from people that we trusted or great expectations that turned into great disappointments. And so uh, how will we ever be able to live like we're no longer orphans. How, how are we going to be able to live like we have a father? This is hard. And so I, I thought, how, how could we best introduce you to somebody we could get to know that has really started in a place that none of us have started in? It's, it's the worst of the worst of the worst. And then all the way through to becoming one of the greatest men who ever served God. And so let me introduce you to somebody. His name is Saul of Tarsus. We know him through the, the, the epistles and the book of Acts as the apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul began as a, a, a person who had the name Saul. He changed it, and I'll tell you why in a little while. So born in 5 AD, 
so five years before the birth of Christ, he had been about five years older than Jesus, into a Jewish family that were citizens of Rome. And that's important because as a Roman citizen, which was rare, the, the Jews were conquered people, and the Romans, you know, the, the highest status was to be a Roman. <clears throat> and so somehow in their lineage, someone had done something amazing, paid a great price, surrendered all their property, whatever it was, but they had become Roman. And so he's a Roman citizen born in 5 A.D., in the city of Tarsus. He's a Hebrew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is important because the Benjamites were the warrior class of God's 12 tribes. Um, Israel had their, their scholars and their priests, the Levites. They had their, their worshipers, the, the, the Judites, the tribe of Judah. But the Benjamites were known for being people that could sling stones with their right hand and with their left. They could throw arrows with their right hand and with their left. If you've ever done any shooting and scooting, you realize it's very difficult to kind of go from one to, to the other or to swing a baseball bat, you know, ambidextrously. So these people were the warrior class. So he is of the warrior class. And we find out also that he moved to Jerusalem at about 10 AD at the age of five. We don't know why, but his family said we're in the wrong place. They moved from the northern part of the, the Mediterranean Sea all the way down the seaboard, all the way down to Jerusalem. About, you know, Jerusalem would be about halfway between Cairo and, and Tarsus, where he was born. So there's, it's a long, long journey. They made it down there. And then in 15 to 20 AD, his life, now we start to really understand who he is. He is accepted into the, the Talmudian school of a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was and is, to this day, 2,000 years later, his commentaries, his understanding, his, his yoke, the way he interprets the Old Testament is still being used today. He was to the Hebrew law what Einstein was to physics. Everybody knows him. Matter of fact, the Talmud of the Jews mentions his teaching. The Bible mentions who he is in his teaching in the Sanhedrin. And also Josephus, a secular historian, mentions as he's describing what's going on in this part of the world during this day, they, they describe this guy named Gamaliel. Well, he's accepted into Gamaliel's school, which means he's extraordinarily smart. It means he is extraordinarily disciplined. A, a rabbi would not accept a Talmudin or a disciple, a student, unless they believed in their heart that that student could surpass their master. So this guy that we talk about 2,000 years later sees this kid who, who's 10 to 15 years old and says, I see in you something greater than myself and calls him into his school. An incredible honor. It's a, it's a Harvard. It's a Rhodes Scholar. It's, it's an amazing thing. After he grows and graduates from the school, he is a rabbi, and he joins what's known as the Pharisees, the separated ones. These are the most religious, most hardcore, you know, he's, now there's a Benjamite who's trained by Gamaliel, who's extraordinarily smart and way ahead of his day, and now he joins the Pharisees. He is the special forces of the special forces of the special forces of the special forces. Then he, he forms a particular hatred for the followers of Christ, and you can see why. They're talking about grace. These are ordinary people. They're unschooled, and yet they're claiming they know something about God, that the wise and the learned, I've worked so hard to become this man, and you say you know God in a way that I don't. It was a jealousy. It was a hatred for Christians. And because of that, he goes to the Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court of Israel, and he says, will you give me the authority to arrest, to imprison, to persecute those who would follow Jesus? That's his expectation, and that's his expression of his zeal, his love for God was manifested in his hatred for God's people, which seems so odd, right? He presides over the execution, the stoning of a guy named Stephen, who was a wonderful man that the New Testament speaks of. He forgives everybody who throws the stones at him. He, he dies, uh, in many ways, one of the most noble deaths. He's the first martyr 
of the church and then begins to arrest and imprison men, hear me, and women who are believers in Jesus. He's separating families. He is creating such a cultural wound. There are, there's so much fear and so much authority and so much aggression. Hear me, that, that when the time comes, like people are turning on other people. Like my, my mom's one of those followers and, and Saul's men find out and they bring it to Saul and he goes and, and mom is drugged out of the house in the middle of the night by, by temple guards or by Roman soldiers. It's, it's an awful time and he's done some awful things. And then he heads to Damascus with letters to continue the same thing. He's going to arrest imprison and separate from families, men and women from their families and bring them to Jerusalem and put them on trial. And again, the trial of Stephen ended in a stoning. So he, he is in the process of murdering people that love Jesus. Now, let me say this. All people go astray. You do, I do, he did, Mother Teresa did, your mom does, your dad does. I mean, we, we all have our moments where we go astray. But no one... <laughs> No one spent more time, more energy, more effort, long nights, early mornings, late nights, where he worked and worked and worked to become one of the most despicable people on the planet. I, I, there's that saying, I love this. He, he wasn't a mean, self-righteous hypocrite. Maybe this will help you out. He was the mean, self-righteous hypocrite, you know? I like that. I'm not a big, fat panda. I'm the big, fat panda. Like, he, he was the big, fat hypocrite. He was the guy who put this great amount of talent and this great amount of intellect and this great amount of effort to become one of the worst people on the planet. Now, please think about this. As we pursue the Lord, and we talked about this last week, but as we pursue the Lord, we have to acknowledge that he is the one that does the work. As soon as we do the work, as soon as we help God, we become proud of that. Once we, once we try really hard and we achieve, it's not uncommon for us to look at other people that aren't trying as hard and begin to look down on them as if we are saved by something other than the grace of God, other than our faith in Christ. This guy was, was the epitome of that. He hated everyone. And I want you to hear me. I believe this. He not only hated everyone, he hated himself. His vision of who God was was so off he hid so many things. He, he was trying to work for something that you can only work from. Like, please make me good enough to be yours. But we don't end the process by being his. We begin the process. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. He had such a skewed view of God. He was a despicable human being. He was a murderer. He was treacherous. He was causing division in families until he was adopted as a son. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Read this with me now. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, anyone who followed the way of faith in Jesus Christ, whether men or women, crazy, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, can you imagine? Saul, why do you persecute me? And this is what he says. Who are you, Lord? And this is what he hears. This is one of the greatest oak crud moments in human history. This is what he hears. Who, he's on his ground. This powerful man is powerless. He's laying there. He's blind. There's a voice. There's, it's, 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 he's terrified. Who are you? Who are you? And he hears this voice. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I don't know about you. I've had some bad days. That's a bad day. That, that's not a bad day like, oh, 
you know, I couldn't get my hair quite right. All three of them, one sticking in the wrong direction. It's not that. This, this is everything I've ever known, everything I've ever built, everything I've ever believed, everything I've ever worked for is wrong. It's completely wrong. It's false. I'm not a good guy. I'm the bad guy. I'm not an orphan. I'm the bully in the orphanage of mankind. He's completely missed God's heart. So what do you do? What do you, what do, you do when you hit that place where you realize that your belief system, where you realize that what you thought God was, when you, you just come to an understanding where I was so, so, so wrong. What do you do? Well, this is what he does. And I think we're going to learn from watching him go from an orphan all the way through the process. And, and as we follow him this week and next week and the next week as we finish out the series, you'll see that Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul, evolves. He grows. He changes his mind. He gets new revelation. He lives according to that revelation. And we can too. So what's he do? Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 tells us what he did. He said, though I myself have reason for such confidence. Like, I, here's my resume of good works. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in their flesh, in their resume, in their, in their life, I've got more. Listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I can swing with one hand and swing with the other, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee. You're not going to find a stricter, more difficult group of people to be around and to join. As for zeal, I expressed it by taking letters and persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, hear this, I was faultless. There wasn't a Sabbath I broke. There wasn't a commandment that I broke. There wasn't a, right? He says, but whatever were gains to me, I worked so hard. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So you may be saying, like, oh, so, so what? Right? So what? This is so what? You may not have been Saul of Tarsus. But we all need to go through a process. And I want to just take a few moments now and go through this process. Let me show you what happened to Saul of Tarsus that made him the Apostle Paul. What happened to Jim Wiegand that made him Pastor Jim Wiegand. What happened to the people in this room that may help you to understand there is more than being. There's resting. There's more than doing. There's actually living from what's been done. And once you rest in, in how good your father is, you'll be shocked and how your behavior naturally evolves into what you always wanted to do, what you always wanted to be. It is the love of God that compels us, and it's the love of Christ that constrains us. It makes us do the things we should do, and it keeps us from doing the things that we should. Not a righteousness of our own, but something that comes out of a deep relationship with who he is. Look at this. It all starts with this. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he had to trust in God's forgiveness. He had to. If you don't trust that God is merciful, you will never be right in your mind, right in your view of life, right in your heart with anything. And, and I, you have to hear me. God gave us a free will, so we can blow this, but he also gave us something more powerful than our free will. And I want you to hear this. There's something more powerful than what you've done. There's more, something more powerful than your free will and its bad actions, and that is God's free will concerning you and his actions towards you. I know I say this a lot, but you're not what you've done. Not, not if you're in faith, not if you're trusting Jesus. You're not trusting Jesus plus your works. You're just trusting Jesus because what he did for you is more powerful, more effective, has more authority than what you've done. So in Paul's mind, God wasn't merciful. He was judgmental. Forgiveness is what sinners begged for, but I'm a righteous man. 
Now, I, I, I'm, I can prove I'm righteous because I'm more righteous than you. I'm a Benjamite. What tribe are you from? Oh, you're a Gentile? You, you have no business even talking about God. You're, you're a sinner, right? So now he has to humble himself and accept that he's not who he thought he was. And, please hear me, I'm talking to somebody right now. <clears throat> not only did he have to accept that he was not who he was, he had to accept that God was not who he thought he was either. He had to understand that he was a kind, loving father, not a judgmental, cruel God who destroys cities. Yes, there's stories in the Old Testament about, about destroying cities. There's also many stories in the Old Testament about God forgiving cities. Saul of Tarsus only focused on one narrative. All he saw was this judgmental God that he, he was good enough to please now, and then he realizes that's not the way it works. Look at his conclusion. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. For it's by grace, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul, says to his friends in Ephesus, it's by grace you've been saved. The mechanism by which you've been saved is your trust in him. You've been saved through faith. And this isn't even of yourselves. It, God gave you the ability to trust him. It's a gift of God, not by works. So no one can boast. He had to admit to himself every day that what Jesus did for him was greater than his worst deeds. He was now no longer identified as an orphan who had been disowned because of his behavior. He now had to understand he was a son who had been adopted out of the orphanage, regardless of his past. And it was bad. It was, it was murderously, painfully bad. And he had to get his identity away from what he'd done to what Jesus had done for him. Here's the second thing he did. And this is important. And again, I, I just feel like every time I talk about forgiveness, I'm talking to people. I feel the Holy Spirit just saying, this is for you. So if this is for you. Hear me. The second thing he had to do is he had to forgive himself. And this can be a little bit harder sometimes because I know what I did. I know why I did it. And I, I don't, I just, I, I wish, I wish I could somehow get across to us this thought that remembering the worst things we've done to somehow protect us from ever doing them again, to hold on to the worst things we've ever done as some sort of an identity, um, to, to take our worst moments and somehow revisit them over and over and over again. It is absolutely sick. It is absolutely wrong. It contradicts the mercy of God. It's almost like condemnation wants to correct God on his mercy. How dare you forgive me? Don't you know what I've done? And God's saying, how dare you? Um, how dare you live in a place that I sent Jesus to die so you wouldn't have to live there anymore? You're free. He had to forgive himself. Pastor Josh said this a couple weeks ago when he was preaching, and it, just, it was only in the 11 o'clock service, the second service on Sunday. But he said this. He said, you're not the worst thing you've ever done. You're the best thing Jesus ever did for you. As a matter of fact, let's just do it right now, right? Repeat this after me. I am not the worst thing I've ever done. I am the best thing Jesus ever did for me. That's who you are. Now, if you have to say that a hundred times in a row, if you have to leave the service right now in some, you know, way that we don't infect anybody, but, it, you know, as you leave, get out to your car and say it over and over again. I am not the worst thing I've ever done. I am the best thing Jesus has ever done for me. I am not the worst thing I've ever done. I am the best thing that Jesus ever did for me. I am adopted because he loves me that much. This is what Saul did with his past. Look at this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He goes, not that I've already obtained all this. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend as I did when I was a Pharisee that I've arrived. I haven't attained all this or have I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He took hold of me for mercy. 
So I have to forgive myself. I have to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He continues, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, here, here's the key, you ready? If I'm going to move forward, I got to start forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize, the prize, the prize of freedom, the prize of being an heir, the prize of walking as a son or a daughter of God, the prize of the liberty that Jesus died to give us and resurrected from the death so we would have victory over even death, the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. we got to keep moving, but you are not the worst thing you've ever done. You are the greatest thing Jesus ever did for you. The next thing Saul had to do was this. He had to accept the forgiveness of those he hurt. And this is another one, right? God forgiving you, you forgiving you, and accepting the forgiveness of those that we hurt. Not, not looking at yourself by what you've done, not looking at others through what you did for them. He had to accept the forgiveness of those he hurt. We find this in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. He's come to Christ. Saul is in the process of becoming Paul. But he goes back to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem's the place where he, he presided over the execution of Stephen. Stephen had friends. Stephen had a mother. Stephen had a son. He, he has to stand in the presence of those he's deeply and, and, and irreversibly wounded. And this is what he says. When, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Hey, Peter. Hey, John. Hey. But they were all afraid of him because of what he had done. They're reinforcing um, with their actions. Now, these are the apostles, by the way. They're reinforcing with their actions the, the, the thought that God could never save a man like Saul. Saul's wrestling with it himself, Right? And he gets to the leaders of the church. They say, yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not real sure. So this is what happens. Not believing that he was really a disciple, but Barnabas, this guy named Barnabas, son of encouragement, he took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them. He, you know, he said, no, this guy's for real. And they said, well, we don't trust him, but we trust Barney. And so Barney started this thing. He said, listen, I love you. You love me. We're a happy fan. Yeah, sorry, that was bad. So Barnabas brings them together. And in that togetherness, as Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews that had taken on Greek names and you know, Greek language, they're, they're kind of abandoning Hebrewism and beginning to, to be Greekized, if you will, or Hellenized. But they tried to kill him. They tried to do to him what he had tried to do to other believers. So when the believers, remember the believers here in Jerusalem are those that he's persecuted and hurt. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and they sent him back to Tarsus. Hear me. The people that he wounded the greatest accepted what God had done in his life, and now he's dependent upon them to protect him. And I, I hope you hear that. The people he persecuted are now the ones that are protecting him. He had to be okay with that. Yeah, no, don't love me. No, no, don't, don't. I, what I've done to you, I owe you a thousand times. It, he, it wasn't this humiliation or even a false humility. The love of God was so prevalent among them that what they had been forgiven became their ability to forgive. And Saul of Tarsus, you imagine if he'd have never been accepted by the, the apostles? Can you imagine if, no, if there hadn't been a Barnabas that said, no, he's, he's cool, he's one of us. I heard his story, I see his heart. You've got to listen, he's one of us, I trust him. If that hadn't happened, we'd lose three quarters of the New Testament books. We'd lose the book of Mark, one of the gospels. And from the book of Mark, two other gospels were, were based upon. That was the written kind of reminder of the, the, the story. So we would have lost Luke 
and we would have lost Matthew. In other words, most of Scripture that we have today called the New Testament would never have been written. But Barnabas, but Barnabas, he, he, he forgave him even though Saul had desperately wounded him. And then he had to accept that forgiveness. He had to understand that, that Barnabas was for real, that, that when the apostles saw him, they were for real. And then this church that protected him, they were for real. It's hard. It's hard to forgive yourself. It's not, it's not what worked in the orphanage. What worked in the orphanage was remembering every pain to kind of protect yourself from the next one, never trusting a person like that before because someone like that hurt me once. And we, we see some of that today, don't we? People that look like this or act like this or have this view or, you know, wear this aftershave. It doesn't matter. Anything that reminds us of what hurt us triggers a Pavlovian response. Instead of us salivating, we, we get defensive. We get cold. We get hard. We get distant. We go back into people that we trust that are all safe. What is that? that that's us not allowing God's mercy to flow to us so that we can let it get inside of us so we can forgive ourselves so that in the end we can live in a community that's filled with mercy. The last thing is this. He never went back to self-righteousness. He, he, once he found the grace of God, he never went back to self-righteousness. He bet it all. It just chips all in on God's grace being more than enough. It was uh, oh, probably seven, eight, nine years ago uh, that I, I first sat in the prison cell where Paul spent his last days in, in Rome. Uh, in that cell, it's a, it's a terrible place. It's cleaned up as a, 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 a archaeological attraction. I wouldn't call it a tourist attraction, but it's archaeological in nature. But it's, it, it smells clean. It's not filled with human waste. It, it, it's been dusted. You know, it, it, it isn't filled with the, the snot and the spit and the refuse of mankind. Um, it's not filled with, with sewage, which it had been. It was a, when the sewers would rise, the rivers would rise, the water would rise, and sewage would fill this place. It was a terrible pit. It was a, a well, if you will, that was filled with, with the worst that a human being can produce. And in that is this apostle. He's now about 65 years old. He was, you know, five when we started our story, and 10 to 15 when he joined Gamaliel. He was probably 30 when he was with the Pharisees, and now he's, a, he's an old man who's walked around. If you're 65, forgive me. It's not the year of the car. It's the mileage on this thing. Like, he's 65, but he's lived 10 lifetimes. His body is covered with scars from Philippi from the back of his head to the soles of his feet. He's got lumps on his hip where he was caned and in and, and various places and beaten. Uh, he's been shipwrecked. Uh, many historians believe that he was blind, that it may have been his thorn in his flesh is that he just couldn't see. He couldn't, he couldn't, you know, he said, he talks about writing this in my own hand and see what large letters I use as I write with my own hand and go, why would he use large letters? Well, maybe, you know, that's the same reason some of us have a large print Bible. It just, he couldn't see what he wrote if he wrote a tiny. So all of this has transpired in his life and, and he's done his best for God and for man. He's lived in the grace of God. And these I'm about to read here are the final words that we have penned from the apostle who became not just Saul of Tarsus, but through the mercy of God, the apostle Paul. This is what he says in 2 Timothy. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is here. He knows he's getting ready to die. And this is what he says. Here, listen to these past tense phrases, but they're not past tense as if they're sad. They're, they're, they're past tense in the sense that he's completed a work. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 
And now I want you to hear the final words. He's got some greetings, but this is the final message, if you will, from, from Saul of Tarsus all these years later, 65 years old, 60 AD. And he says this, the Lord be with your spirit. Listen to this, grace, grace be with you all. The final words of a man who lived so hard to be self-righteous, so hard to be smarter than everybody else, so hard to be more holy than everybody else, so hard. He was so self-righteous that he lost sight of God and became one of the worst people on the planet. But Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. But Barnabas took him and introduced him to the disciples. But, and I just, I want to end today by simply saying this. Um, are you living by God's grace? Are you still living as an orphan would live? Are you afraid? Are you trying to be better than other people? Let me just say this, and I want to say it gently because I know if I say it too forcefully, I'll just push you away. So just come a little closer. The words that you say, the, the words that you type, the words that you think in your heart, are they filled with judgment or are they filled with mercy? Those, those of us would say, man, it's kind of a mixture. It isn't all grace. It's not all judgment. Sometimes I order a pizza and there's no, you know, whatever in that. But, but if it's like, it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty even thing. Sometimes my words are filled with judgment and resentment. And, I, you know, listen, if your heart is not at peace, it's evidence of an orphanage in which we all once lived. If your heart is not at rest in who your father is, I'm not saying there aren't battles to fight. I'm not saying there aren't people to confront. But I'm saying this. When you confront a storm from the storm, you're at a great disadvantage. When you confront the storm from peace, knowing who you are, knowing whose you are, knowing the nature of your Father, knowing that you are to be transformed into His likeness day by day, revelation by revelation, moment by moment, glory by glory, we're supposed to be growing in an image like Him. If your words are more of like the accuser of the brethren than they are the, the blessed Father to His sons and daughters, it, it, it doesn't make you a bad person. We all need God's grace. But what it does make you, please understand, if you live in a constant sense of turmoil, strife, a lack of peace, anxiety, worry, anger, fear, but that's not from the Lord. That's our attempt from the reflexes, from the Pavlovian reflexes we got from living in 2 Timothy chapter 3, orphanage-type world, to defend ourselves, protect ourselves, my rights and my stuff. I, I get that. Understand this, what God would love to do in your life is to save you by his grace through faith. I don't mean to save you from your sins. I mean save you every day, save you from the strife, save you from the division, save you from the malice, save you from the fear, save you from your own insecurity, save you from your self-limiting beliefs, save you from looking in the mirror like, like people who became great for God all looked in the mirror and they said, I don't see what you see, God. It's because they weren't thinking what God was thinking about themselves. If, if you would just understand, have a five minutes with Moses and say, why would you say to God, I don't want to go do this? He'd say, well, I didn't know who I was. Jeremiah, why would you say you were too young? Well, I didn't know who I was. Gideon, why, why were you so, I didn't know who I was. You know, Abraham, why didn't you? I didn't know who I was. I'm telling you, we'll never know who we are trying to be something we're not. We can only know who we are when we let God tell us our name, our identity. He can take you, a Saul of Tarsus, and turn you into an apostle named Paul. He can take you, 
He can transform you by his love, by his grace, by his mercy into that which he has seen you to be, that which he created you to be. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Father, I pray for everybody that will gather and hear these words. I pray that you would help them to surrender. In a day in which fighting seems to be the only thing we know how to do well, I pray that you would teach us that in our weakness you become so strong, that in our foolishness you show your wisdom, and our trust in you is our salvation. I pray that we would know our name as you would call us our name. I pray that we would know our identity through you, that we would no longer fight for the things that are already ours. We would simply fight from them for those who don't yet know who you are or who they are. I pray for mercy, God. I pray that mercy, that we would, we would be forgiven by you and we just rejoice in it. We would um, you know, accept the forgiveness of our, of our sins. If you forgive us and we don't forgive us, it's our way of telling you you were wrong to have forgiven us. So we, we stand corrected. We allow the community around us to forgive us. We forgive the community around us if they choose not to. And we decide here and now we will never, never go back to our old life never go back to making you some sort of cruel judge. Never go back to something beyond grace for there is nothing beyond your grace. If we ever go beyond it, we will find it's nothing. Bring us to a place of grace. And as Paul said in his final words, I say to you now, grace be with you all. Amen. So glad you came today. So glad you helped us with this experiment. So glad this word has been shared and I pray now go live in it. God bless you. Live long, prosper, and I will see you soon.